FIS Castaway, the podcast keeping you in the know about the shipping and commodity world. To keep up to date, sign up to our FIS Live app at www.fis-live.com or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Right. Good morning and welcome to the latest FIS Castaway podcast. Uh, today is a Brazilian focus special, or Brazil special as it were. So here in London, we have myself, Alex, Chris and Kerry Deal from Singapore, T- Tom, I almost called him Tim there, and joining us from the Brazilian Embassy, Deputy Head of Mission, Roberto Doring. Good morning, gents. Morning. Good morning. Good morning. So we will kick off and uh, obviously... I think everybody's well aware of Brazil's importance in the commodity and energy markets. Uh, a huge player, exporter and importer, rich in mineral reserves and, you know, a major player on the industrial scale worldwide. Um, Kerry, would you like to talk to us a bit about why Brazil is so important in the supply chain around Brazil? Well, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, from the perspective of several of the products we do, they are the largest or one of the largest exporters on earth. Uh, Vale uh, is the largest single uh, exporter in the world of iron ore. And in addition to that, there are several other large mining firms in Brazil that are quite active, uh, making it, uh, the, I believe, the second largest exporter overall in the world after Australia of iron ore. And the quality of iron ore exported from there is very, very high. Uh, in addition, soybeans, a $30.5 billion export industry, I believe, from Brazil and uh, uh, and an absolutely massive center for exports on sugar as well, the largest exporter of sugar on earth as well. Understood. Okay. Roberto, tell us a bit about Brazil's export history. Um, you know, why is it such a, a significant player in, in the global markets? Well, after all that's been said here, it can come as a surprise to many that until the 1970s, Brazil was actually a net food importer. So what has happened since uh, that time? Uh, We have actually um, undergone a a genuine um, agricultural revolution, if you will. We have invested heavily in science and innovation, and this has resulted in continuous productivity gains, I'm sorry, of over 3% per year. So this is uh, uh, not over yet. So uh, uh, the Brazilian Agriculture Research Corporation, Embrapa, is at, as, at this moment on the process of developing a variety of tropical wheat adapted to the Brazilian climate, just as it did with soya in the 70s. So we are watching a new revolution in the making. So to sum up, I would say that the uh, Brazilian agriculture is the product of consistent investments in science and innovation. And of course, the outcome is the one uh, we all uh, know. Brazil is the the world's largest exporter of soybeans, sugar, coffee, poultry, orange juice, uh, the second larger exporter of beef, corn and cotton, all again, thanks uh, to this this, uh, enormous gain in productivity uh, stemming from science and innovation. Okay, very interesting. Kerry, you got a point there. That's really, really impressive. Uh, I mean, and the soybeans in particular, and bringing it back down to, I guess, a, a near-term view, just wondering, Roberta, if you actually saw any short-term gain this year. This is already, obviously, a, 30, a $33 billion industry. In fact, I think I got my figures wrong at first um, uh, in terms of exports. But a lot of those do go to the Far East. A lot of those go to China in particular. 
Did you see a gain this year for the agricultural sector in general or for soybeans in particular from the U.S.-China trade war yeah, slowing we, down? Yeah, we actually did. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, the pandemic has, of course, hit Brazil as it has hit the whole world in very negative ways. Uh, there's no doubt about it. But there's also some positive developments that are worth highlighting. Uh, so in the past two years, Brazilian exports to China were propelled by the uh, U.S.-China uh, trade dispute, as you uh, suggest, uh, and of course the African swine fever outbreak, which uh, decimated 40% of China's whole population. And this year, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic further enhanced China's reliance on global food markets. So in the first four months of this year, Brazilian exports to China actually grew 11.3%, if I'm not mistaken, that's, that, that's the figure I have here with me, with surges precisely in the export of soybeans, beef, and pork. Okay. But I, I've just got a quick question for you, but obviously trade with China is, is vital. But during our, our reading and preparation for this, we saw how significant your trade relate or Brazil's trade relations with both Argentina and the Netherlands were. And the Netherlands one surprised us. Argentina is, I would say, fairly obvious being uh, a neighbor. But what is Brazil's trading relationship with with uh, the Netherlands? Well, there is a there is a statistic um, uh, effect there coming uh, from uh, the fact that m many of what uh, or much of what Brazil exports to Europe and even to the UK actually comes through ports in the Netherlands, right? So it's not to say that we are exporting to the uh, Dutch market. It's just that we are using their uh, port infrastructure to get our goods into uh, the European space. And as, as I said again, even the UK market. Makes sense, right? Okay, that that definitely makes sense. Kerry, you were mentioning to me just before the podcast about the influence that Brazil has on the sort of Cape size and the Panamax market. Absolutely. I mean, you know, both of these markets are, are really shifted um, and, and I, I, one might almost say dominated by the export routes from Brazil, uh, particularly the Cape size where Brazil to China with iron ore um, in terms of ton mileage uh, has long been perhaps the dominant route in terms of setting prices on the Cape size market um, overall. Okay. Uh, and also the Brazil to Europe markets as well, as, uh, as Roberto referred to a lot into Rotterdam, for example, um, to serve European steel mills. Okay. Um, but yeah. Okay, yeah. very interesting. All right, well, gents, I'm going to move us on. I don't think we're going to spend too much time on this because I think we've got some more interesting things to look at here. But the mining and oil industry in Brazil is huge. It's a huge footprint globally. They're very well-managed large industries and firms. Um, Tom, Kerry, your opinions and any questions for Roberto on the mining and oil industries in Brazil? I mean, I really have one question, which is that we've seen some really ambitious expansion targets recently in the medium term from some of Brazil's largest corporations. Already this year, we've seen Vale recover a lot of its production, hitting, I believe, 310, 320 million tons exports. Uh, we've got CSN producing 40 million tons. We've got San Marco restarting production five years on. Um, and uh, Vale in particular set a target, I believe, of 450 million tons, so almost 50% higher for five years from now. Uh, what policies and conditions in Brazil uh, would allow for this expansion and are really facilitating it? 
Well, um, I think we, we should think about the uh, trajectory of companies such as Vali and uh, CSN as well, the Companhia Siderúrgica Nacional. So they were both founded uh, in the early 40s and as state-owned um, enterprises. So that made sense then because, uh, of course, that this is a, an area of, 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 of activity that is absolutely essential for a country's industrial development. And at that time, there was no availability of capital uh, for uh, the private sector to, um, to establish uh, uh, companies of this, of this uh, size and, and nature. So at that time, it made sense. But both were privatized in the 90s. And this uh, has, uh, I would say that this, the effect of the privatization of both companies uh, is very much uh, in, in the root of the efficiency uh, you are uh, referring to. So, of course, we have um, a legislation in place that is friendly uh, with high environmental standards. At the same time, we are trying to reduce red tape and so on. So this all contributes to uh, the rise in productivity or production, rather. But uh, the fact that these are two very efficient companies that have uh, integrated very well to a market logic after their privatization in the 90s should also be um, one that we pay uh, attention to. Okay. And at the yeah. moment, Roberto, I mean, if we talk about Vale specifically, you know, the vast majority of that tonnage goes into China. Um, if that expansion to 450 million tons comes over the next five years, is the is there, is is it thought that almost all of that demand will come from China, or do you foresee that you know you, you will uh, you'll end up shipping some of that to other countries that become strategically more important over the medium term? Yeah, of course, the China is is a major market for us, and only for us. I mean, this is a reality that uh, will not change, I think, in the foreseeable um, future. At the same time, um, uh, I think we should also remember that uh, Vale do Rio Doce, for instance, has operations abroad that cover approximately 30 countries. And in addition to mining, as, as you know, Vale works with logistics, energy, steel making. So yes, China will most probably remain as a major uh, destiny for our export. Uh, but uh, Vale, for instance, is an example of a uh, sort of di diversification in the way they operate uh, across the world. And just whilst we're on that topic, yeah, one of the things we've been talking about here is the the Vale Max program, um, and you have the sort of strategy uh, to sort of for Brazil to take control of its supply chain and and its its exports, um, and that's you know, very clearly demonstrated by the the building program on the Vale Maxes. How do you foresee that program? playing out over the next 10 years with, you know, China finally stepping up and committing to building some more deep water ports that can house the Biolimax. Do you think that that program will expand or, or is it sort of at where you would expect it to be now? Well, um, I think there's a tendency uh, for expansion. Uh, not only China, but uh, uh, many Asian countries are uh, also undergoing an important um, uh, uh, development experience with new constructions and there's, a, uh, there's, a, there's an, an increasing middle class in many Asian countries and not only Asian countries but above all Asian countries 
So this will all conspire, if you will, um, uh, for the expansion of this program, I think. Okay, and do you think there would, uh, obviously, you know, the Valimax is, is a sort of basket case unique to iron ore. But do, do you think or do you foresee any similar programs for, for different commodities, uh, maybe in the ag space? Well, I'm not aware of any specific programs, but uh, what I can tell you is that judging from experience, uh, I'm sure that other commodities will also benefit from this Asian boom. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, look, uh, before we move on, I want to bring in Chris, our oil expert. He's got a couple of things he wants to discuss on oil. Chris. Haribo, so I just had a question, obviously, uh, about oil and products, which is so hugely important uh, as a world commodity uh, and as Brazil as, a, as an exporter as well. Um, we saw a huge fall off in the prices of, of crude um, with, this, with this pandemic that we've had. And it does seem that going forward, we're going to be, have, going to be having lower prices for longer and perhaps we've already reached uh, peak oil. I just wanted to get your views on how Brazil, as, as a significant portion of its exports, how it's looking to kind of deal with that lower price. Well, I think we need to be um, realistic there. So you refer to the um, decrease in demand um, throughout the pandemic, and there's also the issue of um, energy transition, of course. I mean, as, as we know, uh, the vast majority of greenhouse gas emissions are caused by um, the consumption of energy, right? So that's, that, that, that's why there is this sense that we need to move towards greener um, energy. And Brazil is doing very well by that, uh, by that standard, really. I mean, as, as you know, we have an electricity mix that is three times cleaner than the world average. Uh, we have 47% uh, of renewables in our energy mix, and it's over 80% of renewables in our electricity supply. So we are, we, we are very much aware of the need uh, for this uh, energy transition to take place. But uh, the point I'm going to make is that uh, it's precisely uh, as the name suggests, uh, as the name of the phenomenon, or as the name would give uh, the phenomenon suggests, it's a transition, Right. Uh, so there, there will be no ruptures and the oil industry still plays an important role and will continue to play an important role uh, in, uh, in the uh, years and, and even decades uh, uh, to come, right? So uh, this is something we bear very much in mind, uh, of course, as um, this is industry, as has been pointed out, is very important for Brazil, uh, just for us to have a better idea Brazil's proven crude oil reserves are estimated to be between 12 to 13 million, billion barrels, mostly offshore. Uh, again, another figure that's quite impressive and that shows the importance of the oil industry within the broader context of our economy. The sector has attracted uh, almost $50 billion in foreign direct investment uh, to Brazil uh, between 2009 and 2018. So uh, the important thing here is that we keep things in perspective. Yes, we need to move uh, towards a greener um, uh, energy matrix. Uh, yes, Brazil is doing very well from that point of view. Uh, as I said, with a, more than 80% of renewables in our el electricity mix, but it is a transition. It's not a rupture. So oil um, still plays a role. 
moving on to such an important point, we'll now move on to agriculture, Brazilian agriculture and livestock. Chris, let me bring you in here. You've got some questions and some discussion points for Roberto. Yeah, it's just more funding out, Roberto, uh, for Brazil as such a, an important sector. Uh, be good to kind of find out a bit more about who uh, Brazil's biggest agricultural players around the world are, exporters, uh, which, which Brazil's exporting to, and where you see that going in the next decade or two. Well, um, firstly, if, if I may uh, take a step back just um, uh, for, for a second, I think it is important to notice that Brazil is, uh, above all, I would say, a very reliable uh, supplier of, uh, of food uh, to the world. Uh, uh, we are reliable in terms of efficiency, we are reliable in terms of price, we are reliable in terms of sustainability. So throughout the uh, COVID pandemic, we have shown how, uh, uh, how reliable Brazil could be also uh, during such challenging uh, times. So even during the height of the crisis, when most of the country was going into lockdown, Brazilian producers working in tandem with uh, the Brazilian government overcame early uh, transportation uh, hurdles and managed not only to maintain agricultural exports, but even to increase them, as I said before. So this is the ultimate proof uh, that, uh, that the world can count on Brazil as a reliable source of food, even when circumstances are, are difficult. Now, uh, we have, as I said before, uh, we have in Asian countries uh, a very important uh, market for our agricultural exports, right? So as these countries develop and uh, as more people um, are upgraded to the middle classes, there's more consumption of beef, there's more consumption of, uh, of proteins in, in general. Uh, so this is where our market is, uh, our, this is where our exports uh, are the strongest. But we also export a lot, of course, to Europe, right? And, and, and to the UK in particular. So I would say that there is a degree of diversification uh, in our uh, markets, although with a clear shift, uh, an increasing shift towards um, Asian markets and China in particular. I mean, Roberto, that's, that's very interesting. Something you said earlier caught my attention, which is you mentioned that, for example, you're working on strains of Brazilian wheat, uh, wheat that's better suited to the Brazilian growing climate. Is that something you see as a project for domestic supply, or is this potentially a market that Brazil is looking to aggressively move into as an exporter as well? Well, I think in terms of, um, in terms of livestock, in terms of beef, both domestic and, uh, and uh, uh, export. Uh, uh, the figures I have, I may be mistaken, but uh, I think that some 20% of what we produce in terms of, um, of, of, of livestock is actually geared uh, towards uh, exports. So the vast majority is still consumed um, domestically. Now, when it comes to, uh, for instance, to soybeans, it's I would say the other way around. I mean, the vast majority of our soybean uh, production is actually exported uh, to um, to countries, uh, especially in Asia, but also beyond Asia. So that, that really will vary according to the specific commodity you're talking about, I'd say. Okay. Okay. So for these new wheat strains that you're sort of developing, you know, there's no specific plan in mind, for example, to, to dominate 
the 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 world wheat market <laughs> in no, a few no, years. Not, so. not, not necessarily. Well, uh, I mean, these things are not not always uh, the object of uh, of of great planning, right? Uh, but uh, I would say that when it comes, say, to soybeans, it's also a matter of habit, of cultural habits, right? So in Brazil, uh, there's no appetite for uh, the consumption of, of soybeans uh, or, or, or derived uh, products. But, uh, yeah. but in, in Asia, yes, when it comes to beef, then we eat a lot of beef in Brazil. So that's different. Well, I, I say that would be an important market for wheat uh, domestically in Brazil. Although, okay. of course, there will be room for exports as well. Interesting. Um, Roberto, my question was, I mean, obviously, again, we know how big a part China plays in your, in your trade relationships. But looking at some stats we prepared, Argentina accounts for 6 point, effectively 6.2% of your um, uh, exports and Chile 2.66. So you, you do have strong trading relationships with the other South American or Latin American countries. Uh, how big a part do the agricultural and livestock elements play in this? Well, they do play a part, but one feature of our uh, exports to South American uh, neighbors and to Latin American countries at large is that they are uh, largely concentrated on industrial goods, right? Um, so, uh, and even to the U.S. for that matter. Uh, so, uh, uh, when it comes to agriculture, of course, there is a part of our exports to Argentina, uh, Chile, as you mentioned, and other countries in the region that's composed of um, agricultural commodities, but uh, the vast majority of what we export to the region is uh, or comprise um, industrial goods. Tom, anything for Roberto on the agriculture before we move on to our next topic? Um, I guess just uh, to touch on what you were saying about beef consumption in, uh, in Brazil and, and, and globally, Obviously, that's another hot topic um, with regards to people um, moving towards more vegan diets. Is that something that Brazil at a, at a, a government level is starting to prepare for, or is that um, not on the radar at the moment? Well, uh, uh, of course, that uh, as in other countries, especially in Europe, uh, there is a, a growing uh, uh, there's a growing demand for vegan. Uh, uh, products uh, in Brazil, but I don't think yep. this is something that is relevant enough to affect uh, uh, government planning, or or it's something that specific sectors of the industry already respond to. Uh, okay. you know, so this is not the object of any major uh, planning effort. I'm not, I'm not sure all of us are keen on vegan diets. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, we'll move on, you know, just, just to a point we've already touched on, along, again, along with sort of Brazil's science and innovation and, you know, how Brazil really does have one of the cleanest energy matrices out there. And um, sort of in, in my reading, one of the points I came across were there are currently 637 wind farms in Brazil. Interestingly, only 1.5% of Brazil's power generation derives from solar. Whether or not that changes is something that we'll, that we'll see in the future. But Brazil generates a lot of its power from dams, uh, you know. And again, obviously, being one of the largest sugar producers from <laughs> ethanol. 
So what, what, what does the sort of landscape going forward look like for Brazil's renewable energy uh, complex? Yeah, yeah. I think, as I, as I said before, um, uh, our, our, our energy mix is, is very uh, clean. So uh, I don't want to bore you with uh, the figures again, but it's, it's always worth um, uh, underlining. It's almost 50% of renewables in the energy mix it's more than 80% of renewables in the electricity uh, mix. Uh, so therefore, we have a sector that can, uh, or an energy, an electricity sector in, in particular, that can already be classified as low carbon. But, of course, there's room to grow and, as you put it, to diversify. There's really, uh, this is really very clear. Uh, so as a developing country, with over uh, 85 of our population living in urban areas, our electricity demand is, of course, growing, and we want to meet this increasing demand with even more renewables. So we are currently within a time frame of our 10-year energy expansion plan, and one of the core principles of this plan is diversification again. Therefore, bioenergy and new renewables, such as wind and solar, are expected to increase their share in the energy mix in the coming years. Uh, as you correctly uh, uh, said, uh, the electricity sector is very much hydro-based, I would say almost 60%. So our hydro is also set to expand its installed capacity, but at the same time reducing its proportional share in our matrix because other renewables will experience an even greater increase in installed capacity. So um, at this point, we expect solar to jump from 2% to 8% of the mix and wind uh, to uh, jump from 9% to 16% uh, of the mix, say, until uh, 2029. That's, that's the time frame of the energy expansion plan I, I, I mentioned. And also in sure. July, our uh, Ministry of Economy has lifted import tariffs on equipment for solar energy. So. Uh, we are engaged in this diversification effort to make our matrix even greener and cleaner as we need to, uh, uh, to meet a growing demand for energy. Completely agree. And I have to say, but I think something we all have to admit is that a lot of this greener energy, in reality, is going to end up being cheaper, ultimately. Yeah. So, our, you know, profit margins are actually there if you invest in the greener energy. And the truth is, we all need to look at it from a business perspective. You know, as, sure, you know, sure. It's an important part of, of when you're making decisions uh, decisions about the future. Which leads us to to our final point on today's discussion. You know, the future for the Brazilian economy. Well, you know, let's look at it from the perspective of the energy complex. You know, how, how does this look? Where is it going to take us? Well, when it comes specifically to the energy sector. Um, I think that what I have uh, tried to, 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 to say uh, when I mentioned our 10-year energy expansion plan is very much how uh, things will develop as we look ahead. So a, a great diversification of our uh, matrix with solar and wind uh, expanding, with hydro expanding, but reducing its proportional share. So that's how I see uh, the way ahead in terms of our uh, energy uh, mix. Now, on, and of course, biofuels will always play a very central ro role. Uh, you, uh, you, we all know that 
Brazil has actually started its uh, energy transition, I think one could put it this way, in the 70s, when we developed our, our, our um, ethanol program back then. So uh, this is something we have been doing for a long time, and as in the agricultural sector at large, it, it is very much uh, driven by um, science and uh, innovation. Now, if you think in terms of the Brazilian economy more broadly, I don't, I don't know whether you would be, um, I don't know whether you would have questions specifically about uh, uh, that go beyond the energy sector and and that have to do with our economy uh, more uh, largely. But uh, if if I may, uh, I would say that we are of course going through a, a difficult moment, as every uh, country is, given this. Uh, pandemic. When the pandemic hit, Brazil was recovering from a very severe recession, and we were doing so by um, uh, moving forward with a robust agenda of economic reforms, with a view to liberal liberalizing our economy and opening it further to foreign investment. We had passed our big pension reform that was essential to put us back on track for fiscal responsibility, and then precisely the uh, pandemic uh, hit us. Uh, so uh, we have responded uh, to this challenge uh, very much in line with other G20 countries. I would say uh, there was a very important fiscal uh, response that's worth of uh, that's worth over eight percent of uh, GDP. Uh, there was also very important monetary response that's worth uh, more than 17% of our GDP. So, uh, and, and, the, and the, the, the results are there in the sense that we are, all the signs point to a V-shaped recovery at this time. That's great, Chris. Now, just picking up on, on what you're talking about there, Roberto, um, we had the chancellor here in the UK talking today about his spending review and obviously all the things which have been caused about this, this virus and it's thrown a lot of countries off track in terms of their economic planning. And I just wanted to get your view in terms of Brazil. And as you said, it's coming out of, of a, a recession previous to, to the virus crisis hitting. Do you see this as um, what we've experienced in the UK is a lot more public, public sector spending, or is this going to be tighten the bootstraps? How is Brazil going to cope with that large outlay and, and the economic hit that we've had? Yeah, well, in the case of Brazil, uh, uh, the idea we have is that it will have to be um, led, the recovery will need to be led by, uh, by private money. So, uh, of course, that Brazil, as a developing country, relies very much on social services. Our, we, have a, we try to have a, a, a strong as possible uh, social uh, safety net, uh, and this is all true. But when, it, uh, when it, it's actually about uh, making the economy uh, grow and become more uh, dynamic, then we will need to rely on private uh, investments. Uh, one thing is that, of course, that we have, as the UK and many other countries, as I said, we have poured huge amount of public money into the economy uh, this year, given the pandemic, right? So I mentioned uh, the figures. Uh, over 8% of GDP for the uh, fiscal response, over 17% of GDP for the monetary response, not to speak of another 17 to 18% of GDP 
on other measures of capital relief. This is something that will, uh, of course, represent a major strain for our public uh, finances. But uh, what we have been trying to uh, convey to the markets and to the public in Brazil itself is that this uh, needs to be understood as a one-off, right? It was an emergency, so the time was the time was really one where uh, the, the state um, had to step in. So the state did step in. Uh, it, it has been doing what needs to be done at a time of emergency, but it's a one-off. So that's why all the expenditures that uh, have to do with our response to the uh, pandemic, they were actually, uh, they were actually uh, uh, provided for in a special budget that we dubbed the a war budget. So the idea was to uh, communicate. It was a matter of messaging as well uh, to show that it's, it's not business as usual. It's a one-off. After the after the after the uh, the crisis uh, uh, is uh, the the sanitary crisis is over, we will need to get back to our uh, uh, track uh, of fiscal responsibility. We will need uh, to abide by the ceiling of um, of public expenditures that is has been established uh, or enshrined in the very constitution. Uh, and the fact that the uh, structural reforms that we need for fiscal consolidation are already uh, advancing at this point, even uh, as we are still at, at grips with uh, the pandemic, shows that there is a clear understanding on the part of stakeholders in Brazil, and including the Congress, uh, for uh, fiscal responsibility to be fully uh, uh, observed uh, as we uh, leave this uh, sanitary crisis uh, crisis behind us. Thank you. I had one more point, which um, one more question, which looks a lot further ahead. Um, I was struck by a comment. I think it was an interview with former British Prime Minister Tony Blair a couple of years ago. We said that in the next few decades, the world is going to be, you know, the big powers of the world are going to be your large population countries. It's going to be your China, your India, uh, Indonesia, and Brazil. And I just wanted to get your kind of view of where Brazil's government sees its world role uh, going ahead in the next couple of decades. Well, uh, I, I think Brazil sees itself as a force for good in the world. I mean, we ha we are a, a huge country, as as you uh, as we all know. Uh, we have ten neighbors, and we have been in peace with all these ten neighbors for over a uh, hundred and fifty years. So. Uh, the thing is, uh, uh, Brazil is, uh, by nature, I would almost say, uh, a force for peace, a force for dialogue, for negotiation. So if we see ourselves already, I think, as a, as a power, but not as a traditional and military power, that at least that's how I would see it. Uh, I see it as a power uh, uh, by virtue of its um, capacity to build arguments, uh, to convince, and of course, with all our uh, technological advances in the area or in, in key areas such as agriculture and energy specifically. Uh, so this is how I would see Brazil, a, 
a soft, a soft power kind of power, if you will. And I guess what you said earlier as well is about a breadbasket of the world with the amount of agricultural exports that it does. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, look, I think it's been a very interesting discussion, gentlemen. Uh, very educative for all of us. Unfortunately, like all good things, it has to draw to a close. So thank you to Kerry and Chris in London here with me, Tom in Singapore, who probably needs to go home at some point. And thank you very much to you, Roberto. Uh, thank you very much for that, taking the time to spend uh, this time with us today. And uh, we will do this next week and hopefully you can join us then. Exactly. Thank you so much. Enjoy Cheers, guys. Thank you for having me, Alex, Chris, Kerry and Tom. Thank you.